back again with another Ag Watchers, and I've got to be on my best behaviour tonight, Andrew, because I've got kind of my, one of my boss of sorts is uh, is on with us. Um, obviously, I'm policy council member for Sheep Producers Australia, and we have the CEO of Sheep Producers Australia, Bonnie Skinner, has come in. Come in, Skinner. That's what we're going to call it, aren't we, Andrew? No, um, or, 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 or you take the high roads and we'll take the low road. We can all join in that one together. Mm, yeah. Well, yeah, that's a little bit of a nod to uh, Scottish culture. And I'm feeling a bit left out now. That the dog leash I know is not enough to, to fit in with uh, the strong Scottish genes that you two both possess. Mine's, <laughs> my, mine's uh, many generations back. But um, So we've got Bonnie in to have a chat about all things sheep. Welcome, Bonnie. Did you want to give us a bit of a... Tell guess, us who you um, are. Yeah, a bit of a five-second five uh, summary. A five-second summary. That's not enough time. Well, you've, already, uh, you've already used five seconds, so anyway. That's right. <laughs> You're lucky to have me. No, uh, <laughs> thanks very much for having me. I've uh, been involved with the sheep industry for a while now. I've been with Sheep Producers Australia for four years, uh, going on four years. So uh, lots to talk about in the sheep industry. It's been a busy, busy couple of weeks for us. How long now? Because you're acting CEO now, you're actual CEO. Um, how, how long? When was that? brought in as in the actual role has that been would it be six months now or yeah so i was acting started acting in october and um and got appointed end of february start of march so okay yes. see, I'm, I'm, see i'm thinking of starting to act as well <laughs> I, I don't know what to do but i think i'm gonna have to do something with a scottish accent so i think about bringing the train spot and musical to australia because because i think i've got a good voice for acting maybe so, so anyway, the sixth sense. Well, yes, we have to do that. I'm not sure if Bonnie's aware of what that is. I'm have to give her a rundown of. Um, well, she doesn't listen. We to this have a little she, warm up. She, she have a little warm up activity we have at the start. Lovely, love a warm up. Yeah. Word association, it is, isn't it, Andrew? So it's first high, thing, it's high tech. First thing, a uh, phrase or word that comes to your mind when you've got six things we're going to fire at you in terms of a, a a word, isn't it, Andrew? You're going to go first. You go first. Uh, a lot of sheep export. Very important. Black pudding. Good with breakfast foods. Haggis. Mm, Got to cut it open with a Burns palm and a and a sword. <laughs> Shearer shortages. Something the industry needs to fix. Mm. Uh, foot and mouth disease. A threat we've known about for a little while, I suppose. Very expensive. I'm not very good on the one word. Sorry, guys. That's all right. No, it can be a phrase, Andrew. <laughs> be a phrase. Uh, I, didn't, I had a good one, but I forgot about it again. Uh, Crocs. <laughs> Just never acceptable. Sorry, mate. Yeah, you've either, okay. got fa- so she, you've either got fashion taste or you don't. Pa- Bonnie, and you fall into passed. the don't category clearly. With us. <laughs> she she passed the she passed the test on the black pudding and the haggis, but failed the Crocs uh, acceptance test. Two or three ain't bad. Yeah, that's that's true. It's good good lyric for a song, Andrew. True. Yeah, so so we started there with LiveX, and you said it was very important. <laughs> um, did you want to elaborate a little bit on that in terms of? Uh, What's been the... what's been happening in the last week? Anything happening in LiveX? <laughs> oh yeah, I don't know if you guys <laughs> if you've heard anything or not. 
tried to keep it under wraps. No, no, obviously lots of lots of discussion on live export. Um, and it is important. It's, it's a really important part of production systems to producers in WA. So of course, of course it um, when it comes up, uh, people are passionate about it and it's important to make sure that that industry is being looked after in any of these discussions. But um, yeah, look, there was quite an, an interesting situation with a, a policy position being leaked out uh, <laughs> through Animals Alliance survey. Um, and look, it's it's a policy that hasn't changed since since 2019 from, from the ALP, from the Labor Party. Uh, but, you know, we certainly we spoke to Julie Collins this week ourselves just to find out a little bit more what they had plans. Sorry, who's, 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 plans who's, Julie mm. who's Julie Collins? She's our Shadow Agriculture Minister. Oh, right, okay. I wasn't, didn't realise that. Well, geez, look, see, it's good for me to teach you some things, no, Kate. No, absolutely, yeah. I guess I just hadn't been aware of her. I guess it must be the low-key. choosing colours for your Crocs, I suppose. <laughs> um, yeah, so, so look, it's... <laughs> There was, there was a, there was when you said there was a bit of a leak. It was it the animal, Australia's Animal Alliance or something like that. Was that the Jed Goodfellow character that was that had come out basically saying that they'd been told by a Labor spokesperson that Labor were committed to ending live export in a. Was there a window of time that they outlined? Was it three or five years or something like that? Yeah, their original original policy was um, was to phase it out within five years. Uh, they, they changed this time. There has been a change in the policy, which which Julie has advised us that there there won't be a, a time frame put around that phase out, um, and that they want to work closely with industry uh, to figure out how best to do that. So that is the change. There was a bit of a a bit of a circus, a bit of a, a drum up by the media. This this past week and a bit of excitement, especially when Albo made his uh, press conference. That was um, Friday. Yeah, there's been a bit of yeah. Friday. There was a, 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 was a journalist that asked him what the story is around this because the announcement got made by a non, like not from ALP originally saying that this was the thing and then ALP had to come out and clarify and then Albo was asked a question Friday, I think it was, and he made a statement like, oh, he said something like policies change, but he meant that the, policy has changed in the sense that they're not got a limit now in terms of how long before they phase it out but they're still planning on phasing it out yes that's correct yeah Yeah. so so it's all been a bit of a schmozzle a wee bit of one in the (laughs) last week but like nothing's really changed then like Joel Fitzgibbon back in 2017 or 2018 or whenever that was, because I remember Matt had a, a stand-up argument with him. I didn't have a stand-up argument Did with you? him. No, we were in. We were. It was a very. It was a very respectful discussion at the <laughs> the, the press club. The press club in they, they, they had to get the club. they had to get the bouncers in to drag the two of you apart. <laughs> and then and then three weeks later, Joel Fitzgibbon was talking about his retirement. You know, it was. <laughs> but it was no, it wasn't. It wasn't an argument. I, sh- I shouldn't say that because we we're very professional in our professional lives. Yep, he was. Um, it was a robust, was very, robust was debate. He was no. It was. A, it was at a uh, Victorian rural press club event, uh, and it was actually leading up to the last election, Andrew, wasn't that? Because we, yeah, just wanted to. And at that time as well, Bonnie would had all the the changes with uh, with uh, the live sheep sector. Making uh, adjustments on ship, uh, you know, moratorium. The moratorium phase was in. We'd seen some significant uh, reductions in mortality rates on live shipping uh, through that period of time. So I was, and there'd been a bit more research released around um, humidity, kind of dealing with humidity. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think there was a like 
a trial period that LiveCore was was kind of you know trying to instituting a a program to see how they could best cope with that uh, humid kind of northern hemisphere summer. And um, and with all that extra information, I, I just queried Joel leading up to the last election to see if there was any wriggle room for, um, for for Labor to you know consider the new data, to consider the changes that the industry had made, and whether they would still pursue this policy of phasing out live eggs for sheep. And he was very clear with his answer, wasn't he, Andrew? Very um, emphatic to say that that was the policy they were going to run with to that election. I think he said um, something. I think, if I remember rightly, he says something about, I have read your numbers before and you do some very good numbers. <laughs> a but, respected economist, I think you phrased it says. Oh, yeah, you're a respected yeah. economist. And I said, yeah. geez, he must be thinking of something Does else. <laughs> <laughs> um, but he, he, he did say it was going to be removed. And so nothing's really changed. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, you raised a couple of pretty important things there. So, yeah, ultimately the, the policy position hasn't changed um, and obviously no intention of changing that from, from what we understand. Um, it's disappointing from our, well, for a couple of reasons. I think in, in the way that it all unfolded last week, certainly if you're going to uphold a, a policy around uh, phasing out a whole entire trade that's that's important to one of the biggest sectors in agriculture. Um, it's, it's always good to do some engagement with industry on that um, and, and to have it sort of unfold the way that it did was, yeah, uh, you know, not ideal. Um, but also, yeah, I think the conversations around it now sort of fail to take into account what improvements have been made in that trade, which they're pretty significant. Um, over the last few years, and and they're they're improvements that have been made outside of the moratorium arrangements um, because of other regulations and other other measures that have been put in place around everything you mentioned, Matt. Mm. Um, yeah, that's right. So but, 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 but but in terms but in terms of with that moratorium, that moratorium has caused a lot of damage to that industry because you're missing out the best part of the year really for exports in terms of volumes typically previously, and I guess yeah. I've always at the moment, the market is going to probably end itself potentially. Yeah, you know, that is. You know, yeah. Mar March is what uh, I did some research today, and I think March exports of sheep are about nine thousand head of sheep, uh, and normally it's about one hundred and twenty thousand on average of exports, live exports in March from from Western Australia. So that's fairly considerable drop in numbers, isn't it, Matt? Mm, yeah. No, you've, you've certainly done your, your pre-reading for a change, Andrew. It's excellent. I've done, done my research, you know, and, and so, but, you know, we were talking non-moratorium times, you know, March, prior to the, the, the Northern Hemisphere summer, yet the numbers are still low. Uh, so it's, it's a dwindling industry, unfortunately. Yeah, well, I've, I've certainly, um, I certainly the numbers fluctuate over the time. We see that in the cattle live export numbers as well. Um, you know, I, I guess in the, the review that's being done on the, the Northern Hemisphere summer arrangements at the moment, as I said, you know, there's certainly been discussions from the live export industry sector and, and WA as well to look at potentially how can we look at sending shipments over in those shoulder periods around the moratorium arrangements where, you know, where they've, it's been demonstrated previously that there's been very good welfare outcomes achieved. So, um, you know, certainly... From sheep producers' perspective, our our policies to support the trade certainly while it's achieving those good animal welfare outcomes, 
Um, but yeah, I mean, that's that's the fear, I, I guess, from industry is it's going to no longer be something viable that's uh, an avenue for them to manage their risk on farm and their, their production practices. So it's, it's it's really interesting. Like when you when you think about it from a a market's point of view, yeah. Mm. And if you go to uh, old old Davy Davy Littleproud or or anyone else, yeah, in industry, one of the things that they've been banging the drums about in recent times is diversification of markets, yeah. So yeah. we had an issue with lentils. You know, lentils have been a bit mental, and it's hard to get an export market for them because we don't have India, or we didn't until recently. So about diversifying it, we lost barley into China. So diversify, find new markets for it. But yeah. effectively what we're doing is actually in sheep, we're reducing the export diversity, not necessarily the clientele, the customer, but the actual route to market. It's a bit like saying in Australia in the grains, oh, you're not allowed to send, you're not allowed to send grain in containers anymore. Mm. Well, that shuts off a large proportion of your customer base. Not, yeah. the, big, not the biggest, but a part of it. So... It is a concern because, you know, those countries in the Middle East will buy from alternate origins, Somaliland, for instance. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the realities of it. And and I think in terms of considering what's the objective here of, of some groups that would like to see the trade ended, because if it's, you know, ultimately based in or grounded in welfare, as you said, those those trading partners, they will just go and they have gone, you know, and sourced sheep from other areas. And, and arguably, we've got some of the strongest standards in the world if not the best, you know, we have to say that, but, you know, um, and so if, if that is your aim to, to improve that, they will just go sort of to their other sources to find that, South Africa, other places, because they rely on that. And there is a complementary mm. trade with a box trade as well of, of sheep meat too. Um, but, yeah, it's a good point. You what, think, what, 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 what about incrementalism? Like what about the fact that, you know, you've got animal rights activists have been working for a long time on get rid of the live export trade of sheep. And let's be honest, if you're from a marketing point of view, it's the easiest one to have an impact on. But does that flow through to, okay, then next it's, and you might not be able to answer this, but do you think there's a risk of it flowing through to live cattle exports? Because I think, what's his name? Is it Alex, Alec Harvey Sutton? Mark, Mark Harvey Sutton, yeah. Uh, yeah. From ALIC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I'll get half of it right. Um, <laughs> or Alec. Should be Alec, shouldn't it? My old man's Alec. called like my old man, Alec. Uh, but going back to incrementalism, do you think it will be a rest delights of the cattle market, cattle live exports, and then it could be it could be let's be honest, the next one could be banning shipping trucks across the Nullarbor, shipping sheep across the Nullarbor. Look, I think that's always the concern. I, like, I think that's an astute observation. Um, certainly. Well, thank, you very, thank you very much. You're a greens guy, you know. Again, you read the notes. Very well done. No, I, I think that's always been in discussions around industry tables is around, you know, what was the, it's a slippery slope and where does it end? Um, you know, and, and from our perspective, bringing it back to, to evidence base is, is pretty important. Um, you know, discussing discussing trade with Julie Collins and, and certainly the, the word that's coming out of the ALP offices, not looking to extend that phase out of the trade to the cattle sector. Um, but I think industry has to be steadfast in, in its track record, track record um, which has been, has been a good one. I just, want, I, 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 I just want to point out one thing as well for all of the listeners who are listening intently and who may feel a bit shocked, but we don't actually have show notes. 
we do run this as a completely unprofessional <laughs> podcast with with no i don't want people thinking that this is a put-on act that we're amateurs we are purely complete rank amateurs when it comes to <laughs> podcasts but i don't want to i don't want to lose our style but anyway go on matt i was just going to say with regards though the labor party have been pretty consistent with their policy they're in saying that they're supportive of live cattle exports so i don't think that's I know that the I know that like you're talking about incrementalism as a as a valid point, but um, from a Labor Party perspective, they've been clear that that they're not looking to to ban live cattle. Um, do you yeah, know? So do, do you know of, that? Do you know that incrementalism? If you want a piece of mm-hmm. history on that, mm-hmm. that that was the discussion point <laughs> on the first podcast I ever did. What was that? We did a podcast on social license. That, oh, was yeah. a, that was a first post- yeah. podcast I did with my old mate, who's one of your board members. Mm-hmm. So, a long, long time ago. We should, we should invite, oh. we should invite him back on and and, and have another podcast on it. Um, oh well, on that. I mean, the point is, is that industry. I guess the point that I is fresh in my mind is that industry just, you know, we need to get better at telling our story across a number of different fronts, um, and it's it's not just about protecting. The practices that we've always done and the way that we've raised our animals it's, it's about communicating to a new audience and also responding to to where people are where people do have concerns over the way that we raise our animals as well i think industry's got a responsibility to do tell you think um do you, th- do you think bonnie that uh so the, the labor party now is saying that they're still planning to ban but they're not going to put a time frame on it um if if they get in let's hypothetically say they get in um, and with, you know, with reference to some of the information we've already talked about in terms of the, the data showing that the industry has improved it from a, from a out, outcomes, um, you know, in terms of well, welfare outcomes for animals, um, do you think there's a chance uh, that they can be persuaded to continue with the trade if, you know, if they get in and kind of see what the, what the data shows and, and listens to industry and sees how, important it is for WA in particular and, and how there's a big supply chain that's behind uh, the live sheep export side and, and that, that needs to be kind of, you know, um, retained uh, for the sake of particularly WA. Do you think, do you think that's a chance or am I just being um, too well, let me just uh, Let me just dig out my crystal ball here that I've got stashed away. I, yeah, I mean, that would be obviously our aim and our objective, certainly in conjunction with live ex sectors, put that case forward. I think that's, you know, that conversation's yet to be had. Um, they've just sort of publicised their their live ex policy, their slightly changed one and, and their welfare one as well. I mean, we need to engage with them on that and have those discussions and that's probably where we feel like uh, there hasn't been an opportunity to put forward um, the track record that's been achieved with all the changes that have been made. So, yeah, I mean... Look, is there a chance? There's always a chance, um, but there's there's probably a few things to consider in that. But we'd obviously be putting a very strong case forward um, and seeking that for sure. So there's a lot of discussion. It's going to be a lot of discussion now and and into the future. Mm. And you've been having a wee chat with Julie Collins. Uh, do you? As just a curious thing, a discussion point I had with somebody the other week was about how. A lot of, and I don't know whether this is the case, and, and not you specifically, or not anyone specifically, non-specific accusations, that the industry isn't doing that much talking to labour in the last couple of years that it should have been. Are you asking okay. me whether that is the case or not? <laughs> I'm just asking, asking your thoughts. Uh, because, look, 
you mentioned that early on you, you said something along the lines of there hasn't been that much dialogue from labor when it came to developing that policy with the industry. Oh, I mean, well, to that point, their, their policy hasn't changed. So I guess in terms of engaging with industry in the way that it was going to release that policy, that's that's where the engagement has sort of suffered during the election campaign. But, you know, all of our groups, were, we are apolitical, so we look to engage with both sides of government um, uh, because we need to. Um, so but, that's, you know. But do you find they engage with one side just a little bit more than the other? <laughs> sure, traditionally. Sure. I mean, we've got a very enthusiastic um, agriculture minister at the moment as well. And um, so there's certainly, you know, that's where people tend to spend their time and their efforts. Um, and could we do more? I think certainly in the future we need to be ramping that up, that that engagement up. Um, but there's been sort of a, a change in portfolio over the time. I know the, the conversations with Joel that have been had when he had the portfolio, there was a, a pretty good um, connection and a regular engagement going on there. So... Yes, occasionally yeah, we tend a, to spend more time with the other group. I'm sure that having um, <laughs> having a new minister come in though is uh, I mean that can also sometimes disrupt the the flow. Uh, you know, you've got to give someone a chance, I guess, to get their feet under the desk and get used to the portfolio. From from Julie Collins' perspective, you've got to you know yeah yeah. She's had it for a, a little while now. Um, you know, well, we were all at the NFF conference. You know, we were at the National Press Club was looking forward definitely on both those occasions to hear more about what she had to say and what they were looking to bring agriculture. A um, bit of a disappointing display. I, I think people were looking for more detail rather than, you know, those announcements will come later in the campaign, which should be the unofficial slogan of the Labor Party at the moment, maybe. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, there's time to get your feet under the desk, but there's also um, important time to, I guess while you're doing that, to, to meet with your various sectors and have those conversations. But um, I think we're still seeing a bit of an emerging picture around, you know, what their what their campaign will deliver, even with what a week, two weeks to go. I wonder if, how much of the how much of the campaign will will obviously be resting on the hung parliament as well, or the potential for one. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's going to be a, that's going to be a huge impact from it. So. Absolutely, I mean, that's I think that's you know certainly conversations that we're all having. That's what we need to be prepared for. Um, yeah. Have you got any, yeah, any, any bets on who's going to win? <laughs> Absolutely not. Do you? Yeah, I put my I put myself out there. I yeah, think Andrew, I've, a little while back, <clears throat> is that changed? Are you still think that the, the Liberal Party are going to get back in? Liberal Party, yeah. yeah. I no, was liberal, very liberal solid national. on that the last election. I definitely. I definitely thought they would get back in. This time, I'm not. I'm not too sure. But, to I'm, but, but I'm looking. At, I'm not a betting person, unlike Matt. Uh, <laughs> I, well, I don't like to bet with gambling agencies. I just like to bet with Matt. Uh, but <laughs> Labour one dollar thirty-five, Coalition three dollars twenty. Um, I still think. I still think the Coalition might be a sneaky little one and sneak on in there uh, with the uncertainty around the world. Who mm. knows? Who knows? Well, that's yeah. yeah. That's where they backed their campaign, and certainly is 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 in that in that uncertainty. I'm, I'm, that national I'm, security. I'm probably less positive than I was. When did when did I discuss that? That was in the podcast with Gillian Fennell. Yeah. I, but that was that was, was that, that was three was, weeks ago. Was that after? Because because the the odds for Labor narrowed a bit when um when Elbow had that little slip up with the uh, interest rate. Uh, not knowing the inflation number, or not, unemployment number was unemployment imagine, number. Imagine not knowing that. But there's, it's kind of widened again now. Like since you know, it's, it, a week's a long time, isn't it? So 
people forget. Weeks, weeks a long yeah. time in politics, Matt. Yeah. You guys be, you um, be doing any any early voting or just just waiting, waiting to see how it plays out? Last minute. I, I, I don't see the I absolutely don't see the point in early voting because what happens if you find out that some of the coalitions are, or Labour or whoever it is you vote for mad raging xenophobe or whatever. Uh, so so you've got all this time that something could come out in the next in the next week or next two weeks. And and also if you early vote, you don't get a saucy sizzle. So mm. so what is the point of that? You are see that's the thrifty Scotsman coming out in you. Just gotta say maybe um <laughs> if they had a if they had a if they had a, a little black pudding in a roll or something at the uh Oh yeah, with brown sauce. Yeah, you maybe yeah, have hello. a few more, few more people. The, know, the, the, fu- the funny thing is, yeah, I actually like quite often when I'm working, I'll put on music in the background, yeah. And I decided I put on uh, a bit of Deacon Blue today, you know. Deacon Blue, they're they're full live at the Barrowland set. There might not be many people who know who Deacon Blue is on this in Australia. Most of our listeners are in Scotland anyway. My yeah. auntie Julie. <laughs> And my grandfather, so mm-hmm. grandfather's probably too old for Deacon Blue. But anyway, anyway, going back to the, the point, and it was a pertinent point, uh, it came up with one of those yellow adverts, yeah? What's it called? Oh, yes. Uh, United Australia. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Save your home. Save your home. I was, I, and I decided, I thought, well, I think the longer you listen to it, the more it costs them. Oh, really? Yeah, so I thought, I'm going to listen to the whole thing, Yeah. <laughs> And and it's two minutes long, right? Two minutes long of this advert, yeah. But it's not one long advert, yeah. It's random, and, random things and, that they and say. And to be honest, I do actually like that other one's cartoons. They're quite funny. That that. Uh, one Nation, yeah. They yeah, um, yeah, they have yeah, got great cartoons. Yeah. They're, they're they're bloody funny. They are. Uh, I, w- I wouldn't vote for a person, but that's neither here nor there. It's still funny. Uh, but going back to these adverts, it's like two minutes of. A whole bunch of like 10 to 15 second adverts and they're all nonsense we will bring back the five trillion dollars in superannuation to australia and it was all this australia this and then it was we will guarantee three percent interest rates no more than that for the next five years for australians and then it's like even like in my town yeah you've got the billboards and it says vote for freedom what freedom do you not have in australia it's nonsense yeah, I, feel, I, think... I feel pretty free. <laughs> free Maybe free a little is... too free. But the, I think we're seeing that that sort of, I don't know, that penetration of kind of maybe American-centric politics, you know, our our freedoms and the importance to that. Uh, COVID's really made, I guess, it, uh, what's the word? Like people, people a little bit more paranoid, a little bit unsure about themselves, untrusting of government. So I'm interested to see, last time around with the United Australia Party, they didn't really get, he spent a lot of money, Clive Palmer, on advertising then, and they didn't get the cut through, whereas this time around with the the COVID pandemic, um, I think there have been quite a few more people that are maybe open to these types of, Mm. you know, um, advertising approaches, uh, where you don't actually say anything you know, that's, that's got a basis in anything factual. You just say these kind of random slogans of freedom or this or that. And it, you know, I think for some people it may appeal that, that aren't really kind of looking deeply into what they're talking about. Well, you know, so well, my number one vote was deregistered. So they've been, oh. they've, they've been struck off this, this, this election. Who was that? The Flux Party. Oh, <laughs> 
And and I had a, I had a friend of mine who, who I used to play soccer with, he, he ran for them. Politics by app. So no party policies whatsoever, just an app for your local area, and then you vote. So it's 100% democratic representation. I always just like to give them a cheeky, cheeky number one, just, <laughs> just because I like the idea of it. Uh, I don't really like political parties anymore. Well, I don't dislike them. I just, they don't really fit my, my views at the moment. Maybe I should run. You, maybe you should. You can I'm, have I'm your own. I'm sensing an opening here for you. You can <laughs> have your own, your own freedom party. You could paint half your face blue and just be again. Well, exactly. Exactly. We talk mm. about vote for your freedom here. What about all those, all my, my, my countrymen back home? Are they, the they get their freedom? Under you the can ride up and under, down, up and down the streets of Bacchus Marsh, bare-chested on your horse, with your paint, face painted half blue, and your kilt on, just kind of screaming for freedom. You'd probably get a few votes, I reckon. I reckon so, yeah. Got a, got a melting, I probably would. If um, you, we, we, we've got. We, it would be remiss of us if we didn't kind of switch across and talk about a very important sheep shearing. Yeah. No, I was going to say. No, well, foot and mouth disease, we've got two. Oh, we'll, the... get, we'll get that on the end because then that means people have to listen all the way through to get to that section. But we've got two experts That's in the field. Sheep, so sheep shearing, yeah? <laughs> like late, we had a podcast with uh, uh, Ryan. Oh, sorry, not Ryan. I got his name wrong. Chris on Friday last week. I keep calling him Ryan for some reason. We had a podcast mm-hmm. with Chris, who is the Cupid of agriculture. Mm. And, and we're talking about labour and, and whatnot and access to uh, to 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 to, to labour in the white collar agriculture, but also on farm type of stuff, which you all know is an issue. What is the major issue at the moment with you know sheep shearing? Can we get them? <laughs> well, in a, in a short answer, no. Um, but I think we've also got a bit of a retention issue as well um, when it comes to our shearers. But certainly. Heightened by by our obvious border restrictions and not being able to bring people in, it'll be interesting to see, you know, when New Zealand opens up, whether we're going to get those guys coming back over, or whether it's still, you know, viable for them to come over as well. I think is is the other consideration for them, um, whether they want to be want to be still spending the time to do it, whether it's cost effective for them. So there's a, yeah, a couple of different issues there probably that we see. But do, you think, do, do you think it's a structural issue? Like at the moment, if you look at the shearing sheds, a lot of oldies still in there, which is the same across most of agriculture, really. Do you think there's what was the solution? Do we get some robots in, or or what? Well, robots isn't wasn't there a shearing robot going back to the eighties? I think was the first one. Yeah. Was, uh... I would I wouldn't know about that. I'm I'm a bit too young for that. Maybe maybe Nat, Matt knows about that. I was only. Yeah, but... I was, only, of, I was only five in the 80s. So. I think they've had a couple oh, of man. different variations of robot. There was one where they did an injection and wasn't that, remember that when they put, the, put some kind of a netting over the sheep and then injected it and the wool kind of fell out into the, that was meant to be collected in the bag. That was another one that didn't really continue on. And then there was that um, that cradle that's been developed by uh, Grant Burbage uh, oh, yeah. yep. up near Canberra. He's, and he, yeah. he was at the time then he was employing, I think, a lot of backpackers and the, the like to, you know, they hadn't actually learnt how to shear traditionally, but he was kind of using this cradle to help see, them to be able to do it quicker. See, when I learned to shear, when I did the AWI shearers course, I ran mm-hmm. to do it the traditional way. Mm-hmm. You know, 
narrow comb as well. But you do. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think innovative <laughs> stuff has a place. <laughs> We're going to just bypass your your little sharing qualification or whatever that might, might actually be. But I've spoken uh, about, think... about it a few times in the podcast. So everyone knows it, but I'm a qualified shearer. Available any time, any weekend for shearing. I can do four an hour, ten, <laughs> ten a day with breaks. Um, so, but so you sheep producers, yeah? Yeah. Well, who do you represent? You represent meat here yeah look our primary our primary uh, objective is to represent sheep meat producers but we certainly collaborate with the wool sector uh and this is one of those areas that i think you know needs our attention so i mean the data that's that's sort of coming to us pretty hard and fast and and a lot of conversations that are happening around industry at the moment is this shift towards you know shedding varieties Hmm. um shedding breeds because of you know tightening labour supply, challenges in getting shearers. We've also had a hell of a, a season the last, well, really the last 12 months or more in terms of uh, fly strike and body strike and, and conditions that make it difficult to manage sheep. Um, so, yeah, anyway, we do represent sheep meat guys, but we collaborate with wool on a regular basis. So in terms of that shedding one, yeah, like there's going to be more and more movement. Like we're seeing more and more people talking about them and more and more demand for shedding sheep. We talked to Freshy on the podcast about it. He was very, yeah. very energetic about shedding sheep. Yeah. And, and very yeah. energetic about EIDs, but we'll talk about that later. <laughs> uh, but I guess that's the thing. Like in, in an uncertain environment, yeah. Yeah. You probably, you probably, and you know, forgive me, Matt, if I'm stepping onto your toes. Um, but, but we, we talk to each other regularly, so we, we know each other's areas. But surely we're going to see people moving more and more to it because it's just too much hassle. And like I, I know guys who, guys and girls, uh, in, in sheep who always just say that wool's just a, a secondary thing. More and more so, wool's just a secondary thing. Yeah. And, and so maybe shedding sheep's the way. Especially if, like, what's, what's the sheep price done in the last 12 months, Matt? It's gone up. Uh, yeah, well, it's it's kind of stabilised, I guess, at these high levels. It, we have had we have seen pricing kind of. It's higher soften. than it was last. Higher than it was last April, is it not? Uh, not at the moment. Hmm. So, because we had we had some softening in price through the start of the year, so we're probably oh, I don't know the exact number, but we're slightly below where we were this time last year. Hmm. And wool price has done nothing. Hmm. Yeah. Um, depends on the depends on the. If you're talking the the finer microns, that's still doing quite well, less than mm-hmm. say 19 micron. But yeah, the the kind of mid 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 micron and then into the the uh, broader stuff. The broader stuff's been particularly woeful over, over the last year or so for wool. What about what about? This he, he, might not be a question for 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 Bonnie. I don't know if it is. Just let's let's say let's call it a point of order. Uh, more, more, more a statement than a than a than a question. As as every Bonnie, you spend a lot of time at conferences, and, and you'll know that ninety percent of the questions in a Q and A session in agricultural conferences are not questions but are whinges, or, or, <laughs> or you know. But anyway, uh, what about the, what is your view? Sheep producers might have a view on this. Uh, the, the current economic environment is testy yeah. to say the least mm. you know we're, we're all struggling especially as young millennials like me and you bonnie uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a tough time out there all these boomers like matt have taken all <laughs> of the resources but 
But sheep meat, yeah, like lamb, and mm. maybe not so much mutton, but lamb especially, and wool, are pretty expensive, yeah? Pretty exy, exy products, as the yep. millennials. As premium the millenni products, as we like to say, premium. See, I like, I like to sort of relate with my millennials and say exy. <laughs> um, but in terms of, of that, you know, we, we've been, Matt and I have been discussing this ad infinitum over the last week or so about if the economy starts to collapse in, say, China and there's a bit of flow-on effect, coming to a bit of a recession, global recession, you know, there is a risk there that we see a bit of demand drop off for the likes of sheep because it is discretionary. Like in the U.S., most people don't eat lamb in the house. Mm. Like I know from my point of view, I never eat lamb in Scotland in the house because nobody knows how to cook it. And probably the same in the U.S., it's so, actually changed, yeah. That that's actually changed a bit, just based on on data that's been taken. And and interesting with COVID in the US, that we saw um, a bit of a, a hit on lamb just because of the close down of food services. But also throughout COVID, people have been, I think, experimenting with cooking while they've been at home locked up. And so there's actually been well, the data that we're getting is is showing a bit more of an embracing and an increase in in the amount of lamb that US consumers are eating at the moment. But, but there's still potentially a risk there if, you know, Jimmy Jimmy and Marianne can't afford to pay their rent. They're not inclined to pay for a, a good French cutlet or, or, a, or a, you know, a nice sort of merino suit, potentially. Yeah. So your point being, you know, how's this all shaping up for... Or, uh, well, like like what, I said, it, it wasn't a question. It was a point of point of order. No, but 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 what is what is I guess sheep producers at the moment going through a fantastic time. Uh, sheep producers, not you, but sheep producers, the the plural, not the singular, um, are going through a fantastic time. Yeah? yeah. But what is the plan for when it's not as good? Because we we spoke to the dairy guys in the UDV conference. Um, when was that? Two weeks ago. Uh, yes. Feels like a long time ago. Mm. And uh, that was all we were talking about. Our, our presentation to them, we were asked to talk about well, planning for the future. Mm. And it comes back to that old saying, you know, plan for the worst, hope for the best. But what is the plan for sheep producers for, in general, or singular or plural, for when it gets a downturn? I think uh, just before I give it, I'll give Bonnie a chance to have a think about it. While I just add on that, though, with with regards to your your point around, say, sheep meat globally and wool globally as a product, um, and say if we hypothetically do go into some form of a global slowdown, a U.S. recession, a problems in China, my my personal view is that for sheep meat, you're probably just not going to have the the, the the expectation is that prices are going to rise into the next you know five years or so from my yeah. view right yeah. um, so we might we might not have the same level of price rises that we were anticipating but it may not be a crash for sheep meat whereas I think wool potentially is maybe more susceptible to a pot potential downturn is what I mm -hmm. kind of expect might be the case so we might it might be where if, you, if you're not if you're not growing you're slowing Matt. <laughs> I think, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's a good point. I, it's interesting for us because, you know, we've, we've come out of drought and when we were at the height of drought, we were looking at, you know, what of our, we've got a, we've got a flock that has been declining year on year, you know, for, for a very long time. And <clears throat> under drought conditions, 
Um, what what are we going to do about that? We've got, you know, ambitions to double the value of red meat by 2030 through our Red Meat 2030 strategic plan. And so how are we going to get there? And, and what realistically does the size, what does our flock number need to be to, to be able to meet that market share by 2030? So, you know, we said about sort of trying to understand the reasons as to why the flock was declining and, and people's reasons for moving in and out of sheep and wool and, and cropping and, and what's behind their decision-making because an important part of that. Is, is around your social aspect and just going back to your, your sharing bit as well, uh, your, your commentary around that. I mean, there's there's the tradition that's rich within wool growing families is still very strong as to their reasons for staying in wool, um, whereas there's probably some more price-driven conversations and, and, and labour issues that are driving other people's decisions to move in and around different types of sheep meat breeds, but also um, looking at goats too in some of those more pastoral Western areas too. Um, so anyway, we've been sort of fixated on, I guess, you know, growing the flock. And if we've got this opportunity to, you know, when we were in drought, we we're kind of saying, well, we, you know, we know we're going to come into better times eventually. So how can we prepare the industry for that? You know, if we're going to build a, a future flock, how can we make it um, with all the right credentials basically to, to achieve what our customers want um, in terms of our breeding values and, and grow a purpose-oriented flock? Now we're in this good time and, and the flock's going up. And, you know, to your point, how do we prepare for a potential downturn? And I think, you know, always when we look at our market around diversification and spreading of that risk and, you know, outside of a premium lamb, lamb cuts, you know, where do we look to our secondary cuts and the opportunities that exist around that? Um, certainly, you know, the global population's not going to slow down. Um, things like haggis. <laughs> things like haggis. That's a, you know, that's, we've never, that's te we've, te technically, that's a prime cut in my view. Well, and I mean, certainly also. I'd, too, I'd rather you know, have that than a French cutlet. Any we don't have hogget. We don't have a yearling, um, you know, class of, of meat over here. Last time I was in the UK and Scotland, um, I had a lovely uh, hogget stew. So I think, you know, certainly the industry needs to keep um, innovating in terms of what it might do with its product um, to, to manage some fluctuations. But um it's a good, it's a good question. Dry-aged dry age mutton. Dry-aged mutton's another one in the UK you can get uh, as a kind of premium type product that you don't see in Australia either. Um, mutton, you know, taking... mutton pies. Mm -hmm. four, pies. For, four for a pound. Fantastic at the football with a, a pint of bovril alongside it. Well, it is kind of a cardinal sin to slow roast prime lamb shoulder, you know, as I'm always told. <laughs> it's very delicious, but is uh, slow roasting and that kind of thing is best served for, for your older older sheep. And hey, look, live export, you know, maybe there's a <laughs> there's an opportunity there. In terms of, like you mentioned that, I'm using quotation marks here for people who are listening, the battle for acres that we always hear. Yeah. Which, which to be honest, is like, it's it's a frustration for a lot of, analysts and, and economists because but the person you should speak to is bill malcolm from melbourne uni mm -hmm. he's got a lot of insights into it i can't remember what his wording was matt when he was asked about it uh, we're talking about i think, I think it was uh, regard to growing the flock and he said he was kind of was asking the question do we need to uh, grow yeah, the flock to. wasn't it yeah yeah, yeah. Well, but when we see that change between, you know, sheep and crops, for example, is the classic and you've got a mixed farming business that might expand by buying more land, um, what you often see is rather than sheep numbers increasing, you'll just see that that shift towards the output of, you know, crops rather than that your sheep numbers will stay stable, basically. Um, I can tell you the answer. It's all economics. 
That's right. And and holidays. Well, yeah. You got like Matt and I obviously we are, you know, professional pig farmers and we know we've got to be there every single day looking after the pigs. Uh, rain, shine or and uh, <laughs> but it's but with cropping you do get a couple more holidays per year. You don't have to be there every single day necessarily. Months you get months of holidays, don't you? In between <laughs> Don't yeah, say yeah. that, Matt, because we'll get more complaints if if we say that <laughs> if we say that grain farmers get even a, more than two days off a year. Uh, but it is it is a case that you do get a bit more time off. So so I'm told. I uh, think you yeah pressure life, is from life, lifestyle. Well, it is lifestyle. I I think you can't underestimate though the 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 pull of tradition when it comes to some of our farming families as well. We've got. What might where you might be geographically situated? You know how flexible can you be with your enterprise mix? Um, you know what are you planning to do with your farm development? And I guess what's what's your appetite to risk anyway? Um, and certainly we see a, a huge variation <laughs> in that across our different age groups as well. Um, so you know I think we're still seeing that that shift from you know your traditional specialist wool breeds to your more dual purpose sheep breeds. I think we'll keep keep seeing that and and possibly a shift towards your shedding varieties. But I I mean it'll be interesting to see. A lot of people are talking about that at the moment, but whether they actually go down that road. Um and, and I guess the other the other thing that we we haven't spoken about at all is our our environmental suitability, but also our climate pressures too, and what that might look like in another five to ten years' time. Um, you know, traditional sheep growing regions, what's going to be possible and, and, and for your cropping areas as well. True. Um, how well can you manage through a drought? Well, that's the one thing I always said with sheep is that they are, in many cases, not as profitable in the good years, but they are more reliable. If you look at someone like the Mali, the volatility in the returns is a lot lower than the volatility of grain. You make more in the good years in grain, but you make nothing in the bad years. High risk, right? Hmm. But it's also a bit of a calculation when you've got land prices that were there. So you, you said you mentioned. I'm going to use this as a bit of a segue. Uh, you, you said earlier on that you want to get the red meat industry up to what? What was it again? Double the value. Yeah. Double the value. Yeah. Double the value. Yeah. That's one of the one of the aims at the 2030 red meat industry strategic plan. So to to what what would that value be? Twelve billion. Yeah. More, well, more, more, more than that. More than that. What, what's, well, the, what's the value? industry? That's a, if you're doubling the value, that's a fifty billion dollar moment across all red meat industries. Quite considerable, I suppose. So, Given so, that the target to 2030 NFF's target was 100 billion, we're already at 80, I think, across all of our. Yeah, let's not talk about that because it's basically, <laughs> basically, basically just in 2016 plus inflation. But anyway, um, and it'll be it's a great now. story though, isn't it? It's got captured the attention of all the politicians. It's mm. slightly more. It's slightly more though. It depends on how much well, how high we're, inflation we're, we're, is. Inflation is just now. We'll get to 200 million without doing anything. <laughs> but the, uh, uh, is that if you guys decide to stay in the pig industry or not? Are you going to pull out if times get tough? What will you guys do? <laughs> Speaking of which, if you look on realestate.com, you might find a, a pig farm for sale. But so, so if we if we're talking about red meat, you classify red meat. What is that classified as? Sheep, goats, cattle, pigs. Yep. Is pig a red meat or a white meat? There's always a bit of debate about that. So, sometimes, I always sometimes... saw that. I thought I used to. I thought it was one pork advertisement a while back where they called it the other white meat, as in not chicken, and they used to refer to it as. So I'm not sure. Is is it a 
I thought we asked Margot Andre that one time. She didn't have an answer for us either. Pork, this is from healthline.com. This is going to the first Google result I could get. Oh. So it's a Google so. doctor. Why is pork a red meat? Pork has more myoglobin than poultry and fish. Thus, okay, the, sci- right, yeah. thus the scientific community and food authorities like the USDA classify it as red meat. Okay, fair enough. Uh, also, given pigs classified as livestock along with other farm animals, pork is considered red meat. So put that one to bed. You're the least knowledgeable pork producer in the country that you don't even know what your animal is. Might, might as well be a lizard to you. Um, <laughs> That's the other white meat. So, just a pause on that. Are you what um, what varieties are you going? Are you doing a heritage breed? No, no, it's but, a bit those large whites or whatever they're called, those big mm-hmm. whites. They are the standard kind of. Let's let's move on from question us about our knowledge of pigs because it would, <laughs> I mean probably minimal, <laughs> but uh, the. My segue, which has been distracted by Matt's Heuberg tangent. Um, in terms, I thought you're going to go into foot and mouth disease. That, that's 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 that you... my segue. Okay. So, so what if it's going to fifty billion? Yeah. What is the value of the industry if we get foot and mouth disease next week? Well, residually, not a lot. I couldn't tell you the number off the top of my head. That that work was done back in 2013. We looked at the economic impacts, and I mean, if you um, 50, fifty billion. That was that was that was the figure yeah, that they'd said it would impact to the oh, negative, yeah, right? The, the but that's that's over a couple of years. Is what I thought you were asking, but no, um, yeah, I mean that was and that was that was back then. So you have to anticipate that that number would be higher. But I mean, it's it's realistically it's a market issue. So trade stops um, pretty quickly, and that causes um, you know a huge lot of issues. And that's that's the issue that we're sort of facing with lumpy skin disease as well. So so a bit of bit of bit of busy week for you, Bonnie. <laughs> You know, you've you got the, li- the live export stuff. You've got foot and mouth disease in Indonesia. Uh, and I think we should also give a, a bit of a disclaimer uh, that Bonnie and I are both um, frontline experts, fr- frontline workers for, for foot and mouth disease. We, we have been trained uh, in, in, in how to uh, how to do stuff with foot and mouth disease. Uh, so we have to sort of declare that as a family. But what what is happening in the moment in Indonesia? Give us the 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 what's happening over there? Because they seem to get lumpy skin disease, foot and mouth disease. Is it just because they're detecting it more, or is it just because things have gone haywire? Um. Well, look, we monitor the circulation of these. When I say we, and not me personally, of course, but um, we do look at, I guess, where these diseases are circulating because there's. You know, there is modelling that goes on to determine, and there was some work done recently, uh, last year or the year before, that sort of looked at modelling for, I guess, some of our top, we have, but there was like top five diseases that are circulating around that are a considerable risk. You know, what's the chance of them coming in to Australia within the next five years? And, you know, certainly foot and mouth disease, lumpy skin, it circulates around that Southeast Asia sort of location and, um I mean, lumpy skin disease is a bit of a challenging one just in terms of the, the insect vector spread but foot and mouth disease uh yeah there's 1200 cases um they're sort of going all, through all, all cattle i believe so yeah um still reports coming out of indonesia as to as to <laughs> the details of those i believe they've sent um 
examples off to Perbright to sort of, you know, look at what stereotypes that they're dealing with so that they can start looking at a, a vaccination um, protocol for, you know, where the affected areas are. And I don't think they've officially declared yet. They're, they'd be in the proper, they're in the midst of preparing their emergency declaration. So once they get their samples off and done, they'll get the serotyping, they'll get their vaccinations, their vaccines ordered. Um, and then we'd probably look to sort of discuss with them a little bit further around, you know, how they're preparing to, to manage that spread. Because so, most yeah. of the, it's on, on the border, it's not far away from us. And most of the vets that we spoke to over the years uh, have all said it's not really the case of if, but when. And, and it's pretty scary, actually, because obviously it's a massive impact because it's goats, pigs, cattle that get affected. All cloven hoof species are affected and um, each, each livestock species sort of has a different uh, pathophysiology role. So it's, you know, where we've got super spreaders, your pigs are your super spreaders. Yeah, it gets um, into the wild boar population, and it's here for everything. Well, because 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 pig because pigs. This is this is going back to my train. I'm not going to give stats because it doesn't make for, <laughs> doesn't make for a good podcast, and I can't remember them. But pigs breathe out shed loads, and that's a technical term of the virus, way more than like one pig will like do like the same as like twenty cows. Yeah, they're super spreaders. So that's where you have particularly piggeries and concentrated areas of pigs. You've got um, lots of virus being put out into the... They're mouth mouth breathers. Mouth breathers. They breathe out too much. (laughs) There's a couple of mouth breathers on this call. But um, the the issue with pigs... Is 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 they are these super spreaders, and then you also, but but this is where just to your comment, Matt, about the wild pigs. It's actually it's an interesting source of debate for all of us around our preparedness for FMD because we're sort of trying to understand. Well, a pig, um, yes, their propensity to, to spread, but if they get sick, would they actually just tuck themselves somewhere in the bush and be sick and get a, and then they get over it and then they continue to travel? They actually can't keep spreading the virus on in the same way that sheep and cattle. Um, Sheep and cattle are basically once they've been sick once they are a reservoir for disease, so they can they can go on to infect um, other animals throughout the course of their lifetime. So you've got two different sort of situations there that are hard to manage. But yeah, obviously a lot of our concern is around our feral pig population. But you know, how do we model that? I'm sure somebody has done a little bit more work around that. I think I'll just I'm just going to do another high big tangent there. Just to uh, just to sort of reiterate, like how much of the impact uh, foot and mouth disease has, like it is so massive. And and yes. going back to when I was a, a young lad, you, you've lived it. You've lived I've, it. I've you? lived yeah. it. I've lived it. I've, I uh, on the bonny banks of Loch Lomond, <laughs> back in back in the, 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 the Scotland, back in two thousand and one, I would have been a, a young lad. Um, and it was it was pretty uh, disastrous for our region initially, I would say. Well, there's, yeah, and there's a lot. So, but it was a benefit in the end for a lot of people. Brought a lot of money into our region, uh, but the, but from, through compensation and, and and whatnot. But it did result in you know, things like the tourist industry was 
it was destroyed as well for a year. Music festivals yeah. were banned for a year. People's mental health producers' mental health suffered for years and years as a consequence. I mean, it was, I think that's the thing in Australia, we've been relatively untouched. Well, our farmers have certainly been through it. Don't get me, don't don't um, misunderstand what I'm saying. But we've never, you know, in, in certainly in recent memory, had anything quite like that in our livestock industries. You know, we had tuberculosis in, in the beef industries back in the day, but we haven't had a, a broad scale infectious disease, which in in the extensive industries, which has necessitated, you know, things like widespread culling. And that's that's how you would you would certainly look to deal with it in the first instance is that stamping out policy. And, it, was quite, um, it was quite horrific because I remember. Of course going to 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 a, a friend's house in her house in the in, in the countryside getting a bus because i wasn't legally able to drive and you're getting a bus through the countryside and it's just driving past paddocks with uh burning pyres of uh cattle and sheep and there were hundreds of years of, of genetics you know that and the lines that ended um and you know close contacts of animals that uh, we certainly everyone learned a lot too about you know stamping out policies to to, to follow um Squ squaddies everywhere and that's the yeah. thing because there wasn't enough vets or whatever or even farmers to shoot them all so it was the, the soldiers and squaddies were brought in to to do it so yeah well I mean, and we would have to do that and we see that in natural disasters here you know especially bushfires and things like that you have to you have to bring in people to help but um but but yeah. what's what's this, like obviously like one of the things that is really interesting about like the the British one was the actual spread of it, yeah, and and how quickly it spread around the the, yeah. the, the country, yeah, and that and that's the key sort of deliverable that they've sort of brought out with it is that well, getting on top of it is the is a solution. What was the was the how, how I was going to say the training you guys undertook was that. Was that to can't, can't tell you about it. I'd have to kill you. It's all secret. Yeah, <laughs> but does that? Yeah, you must. You must. You'll be experts in how to manage. What's the What's the process? If it got in, what What do we do? So what's supposed to happen um, is that it gets reported to a vet or a government vet, um, who would obviously, if there was a suspicious case that looked like it was anything like foot mouth disease, they would implement. You know, they would quarantine that that farm, that property. And they would be sending samples off um, ASAP to get to get checked for those sorts of things. And we do do exclusion testing um, up regularly, quite regularly, for lots of exotic diseases that we don't have. Uh, so that would be the process. And if it was confirmed that that was the case, it would trigger a it would trigger a response. And so industry spends a lot of time. What's quite interesting about lumpy skin disease uh, threat? We we spend a lot of time sort of developing how we would prepare and respond for an incursion of these kinds this these kinds of diseases so we do lots of um we've got we've got trained industry people and i don't mean those of us that have had the uh the chance to go to nepal and see it in real time but we've also got training that's delivered to different um producers and and industry and state government federal department individuals that can act um in the in a response capacity should there be an outbreak of something? So there is a whole system that gets triggered um, uh, all under our EADRA arrangements. And um, it's it's a pretty well-oiled machine on paper. Um, how that works in practice for something like foot mouth disease, you know, how well can you ever prepare for that? And I think that's the interesting thing about lumpy skin. We spend so much time preparing for what would happen once it's here, but how do we prepare know that it's coming? It's actually, you know, exposed potentially um, some areas that we need to, 
make some improvements in and get coordinated on pretty quickly. But well, how do you prepare to prepare? It's an interesting one. I guess we live in an era of technology, an era of easy sort of ability to find information, transfer information. Uh, things have changed a lot, even since 2001. 2001, I think, was Bebo. Wasn't MySpace wasn't even available. You know, barely DVDs. VHS, Matt, this is your era. Not our <laughs> era, yeah? And and so I guess the question is, can like most of the country is not using electronic sort of traceability on animals, yeah? Mm. Well so, so I guess that's the question is well how quickly can you trace a, a beast from farm to farm with paper based transfers? Must be slower than electronics. Uh, yes, certainly. So if you take uh, the difference between electronic and a, and a visual-based system, for example, you know, your electronic, your, your verification of your data that's attached to that livestock movement happens through the scanning process. And well, a good example of how that's worked in, in Elk is something that's similar is all of our checking in that we've done with our apps during COVID um, and the lovely little QR codes. But with a paper-based or, or, or not just a paper-based, but a visual-based tag system, you actually have to physically verify in order to be confident of, of the information. You need to physically verify, for example, that, that ear tag and what it says with the paperwork, with the information that sits on the database. So we, have, we do have actual performance standards that are in place to measure um, and, and test the performance of our traceability systems. And... Uh, out of five, right? Five yeah. being good, yeah. One being shoddy. Where would you say Australian system was? The, well, overall? the whole country. Yeah, like overall. Don't need to state by state. Yeah, overall, I think. Look, we could probably be sitting at around a, a three. You know, definitely room to to improve. Three to four, depending on. So not bad. So, so not bad. We're not bad. We're certainly, you know, who's the golden standard in Australia? Which state? Which state? Yeah. Well, is, well, everyone likes a bit of competition, yeah? The Victorians would love for me to say that it's Victoria. You know, they, they paved the way with the implementation of sheep EID. Um, and I think they broke that ground on cattle as well back in the day. Uh, mm -hmm. But they would like to, they, they would, I'm sure, like to say that they're the leaders and, Maybe they, maybe they are, but uh, I think um, it does vary from state to state. And the oh, thing is, is that di we diplomatic media training coming in. Diplomatic media training. We trade as a country, so you know, it doesn't really serve us to have different systems in different states because things like FMD they do not respect state borders, as we well and truly know. So you know, it's not in our interest to have one state doing better or worse than everybody else. We're only as strong as our weakest link. Unless you're Tasmania and you're an island, just keep yourself to yourself. In terms of, I'm going to, I'm going to go down, drop I'm that going, iron curtain. I'm going to go with uh, another Hoiberg tangent, yeah. And I actually can't remember if I'm going to make if I'm making this up or if it's an urban legend. Uh, so I may be talking absolute nonsense. But to sort of illustrate the timeliness of it when foot and mouth disease was detected in the uk and I, I, actually i think this is true it may not be true somebody can tell me if it's true or not when they were doing the testing of it yeah they received all the samples in on the friday evening into the uh the lab i can't remember what it's called the big lab in in the uk 
That's the one, yeah. And uh, then what happened was that a guy stayed a bit late, did a bit of overtime, and then did the testing, which meant that if he hadn't done that, it wouldn't have got tested till Monday, and they wouldn't have detected the foot and mouth disease for another three days. And that had a pretty big consequence in that it limited the extent of the outbreak, whereas that three days, from what I've told, would have been a massive difference between how many animals were culled, because there's a lot of, a lot of animal movements in the UK, and, and a lot smaller farms, a lot smaller areas. So I can't remember if that's true or not, but it it's does. Got a, are you saying that there was a guy in the UK on a Friday afternoon that stayed late and didn't go down the pub? He's a, he's a scientist. That's got to be an urban legend. It's, it's a scientist, mate. Like, he's not going to be in a pub on a Friday, is he? You know? <laughs> he'll, be playing, he'll be in the corner playing those games, those bloody knowledge games, you know, that they have in the corner of the pub. I'm, I'm sure that's true. No, but your point is, is 40% true. No, no, it's 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 more or less true. So, and and they've done some pretty interesting modelling in Australia, in Victoria, just to have a look at you know if there was something in a in a cell yard, they had their major cell yards, they mapped out livestock coming in and livestock going out, and on one day, you know, the movements. Um, look, they don't surprise anyone that works in the supply chain, but it's interesting to see it on paper once you see the fact that if you had something, if you had an infected animal in that cell yard on that day. Literally, it goes from being in that sale yard to potentially over three board, you know, two borders um, within 24 hours. And so that propensity to spread um, is is there. And so realistically, when we talk about an FMD and incursion, what's the likelihood that somebody would pick it up, report it, um, and that it would get, you know, tested? Obviously, we try and turn that around very quickly. But what's the likelihood that that would happen very quickly? Or is it more likely that it might be lurking around, you know, undiscovered potentially? Who knows how it, how it, depending on how it gets in, um, you know. There's certainly a fear of people when it comes to reporting diseases and things like that. So, you know, how long would it be present before no. anyone would know about it? They estimate what? three weeks, and then no. in that three week period, it's no. like it blows out to fifty infected farms or or whatever. And nobody and wants often... to be that first one. Remember, oh, remember, no. remember what happened to the first one in the UK? Yeah. Well, yeah. he. This is a lot. They're not quite sure where it came from, but. Most of, it, most, yeah. most of it, most of it comes to that pig farm that was buying leftover scrap food from a military base. Um, imported sausage and imported meats that that have virus particles and fragments in them from Europe. But you know, so often. so should should we ban the imports of pork products? <laughs> I'm sure certainly like like pudding, like black pudding. Well, no. we, we we get it domestically here from Patton Park. One of our sponsors? No, we don't have a sponsor. <laughs> um, but uh, the uh, do you think this is this is the question? A, a thought I've had over the time, yeah, and I've always thought that, that feral pigs is potentially a risk. The feral goats is a potential risk. Hmm. Uh, but UK is whilst it's a you know obviously a nation with a, a storied history and you know a lot of culture and, and whatnot, but it's also for that amount of history and culture that it has, it's also quite a small country. It punches above its weight. Uh, but in terms of that makes it potentially easier because all you've got farms that are tiny, they're next door to each other. There's a lot of people, you know, going from farm to farm. Hey, Jimmy, what have you been up to this week? Come to the pub. You've also got ramblers walking through fields. Badger watchers. Yeah. Bad, badger watchers, bird watchers, doggers. <laughs> you've got all sorts of people in the countryside, yeah? But in terms of 
What are you laughing at, Matt? <laughs> Doggers. Yeah, people walking the dogs. Oh. <laughs> Ferreters, people who take their ferrets out too. Don't forget those guys. Oh, calm down, calm down. <laughs> Ferreting. Uh, the, but in Australia, yeah, you've got big, massive farms, yeah, with a lot of geographic spread between farms. And probably, I'm guessing, and this is a guess, this Matt can answer this one, you can answer this one, somebody can. I'm guessing we've got lower stocking rates than the UK in general terms because, well, we don't have the, the vegetation that you have in the UK. So would that mean that we've got slightly less risk? Um, less risk in terms of what? Spread Sp of the disease? Spreading it about in that. Um, I think well, the risk is different in different parts of Australia for sure, but... Um, yeah. The, um, from a from a sheep and lamb perspective, the southeastern states, so in New South Wales, Victoria, South Australia, yeah. would all be and and to that degree, the the sheep that are in Queensland would all be pretty much connected. You know, maybe maybe you know you could you could stop it from getting across the WA pretty easily if um, if it was found quick enough in one of those spots and you didn't have a shipment kind of heading across. And probably Tasmania would be another one that because of the isolation there geographically um got a got a benefit there but i think that that yeah. bottom area bottom bottom southeast of, of australia if it got in anywhere there it'd be all through it pretty quick i would have thought yeah and you, you've got to come back to against the the how, how many animals are on the road at any one moment and i think the stats are like a hundred thousand on any given day you know moving around the country so um you know going back to my earlier Earlier comment around it's, I think it's, they're roughly sort of saying it's two or three weeks from memory that, you know, it would be here before anyone knew about it, by which point you'd have 50 odd farms infected. And then you've got a, you've got a, you know, potentially a, a complacent might be a too negative a word, but a population that's not used to dealing with this kind of thing. You know, we've industry introduced biosecurity plans and modules to the LPA program back in 2017, um, purely to sort of put this in the preparation of, of people's minds but because we're not you know we're not like the european countries of the uk where we've got lots of infectious diseases being trudged around because we're not so close together and we, we are free from a lot of those nasty ones but um i just think the complacency factor there is a problem too and the risk that there's a real risk of people not wanting to report maybe so, um Maybe with the COVID epidemic that's been around the place that people would be a bit more like I, that. Maybe I, that's impacted complacency that people realise now, even though it's a, a livestock-based disease, that they could make the analogy that, okay, we've got to take this seriously. So, you know, because I know, Andrew, at the start of COVID, when that was first breaking, someone we knew at the time just was, what were they saying? It was just the flu. Just not the to flu. be worried about. It's not, gonna, it's not going to be any impact upon this. It'll all be over if, it, this is, this will all be over for the next couple of weeks and stop talking about it as if it's, it's going to have an impact over the next couple of years. But, um, but now, who, who, now who, who was right? COVID-19, COVID-19 and it's 2022 and we're still bloody talking about it. So but, in but, hindsight, but, but, but in hindsight, we, we, we sort of, have adapted to it. Hello, I'm not sure how a cloven animal can use an iPhone to check in with a QR code. Well, you know, we've, we've tried training them that the R&D is a bit shaky. Uh, yeah, I, it's, and that's where, you know, it's, it's understanding where the systems need to be improved and, and how do you convince people to make that investment in, in peacetime? Um, because, you know, foot and mouth disease, we always refer to it, it's the big $50 billion pro problem. Um, but I, I think it's almost unrelatable to some people in, in, in that regard. It's, you know, it's not here, it's not close by. Maybe that will change with, with Indonesia's outbreaks 
not sure. But I mean, you know, we, we looked at getting that that modeling redone a little while ago, and I, I, you know, had many conversations sort of say, well, if $50 billion doesn't convince people that that's something that we need to protect their industries against, then I don't know that a, a bigger number will do that. Um, you know, electronic tags, that, that the, the sheep industry does need to make that move. We've sort of done a exhaustive amount of work to understand what Victoria's done down there and whether it's working effectively. Um, the biggest stumbling block is always going to be around around cost and, and who wears that and how do we share that. I guess the thing is you don't know if it works until it works. Well, we do. I mean, we do, as I said, we've got performance monitoring measures. We've got benchmarks in place um, and they're all based off FMD. So but we've got sort of two benchmarks, one for cattle, one for sheep and goats. And there is a difference. So when we when we do our big traceability exercises, to see how we're going against those, you know, cattle has to do its reporting within a 24 and 48 hour period because that's what you can achieve um, with electronic tag and scanning. Because <laughs> they can. Um, because <laughs> they can. Sheep, um, she, there's a 24 hour period for sheep, but there's also a three week window for, for longer tracing and tracing of cohorts. So, you know, <laughs> you overlay that with a, an infectious disease that spreads very quickly, throws up a lot of concerns. So. Yeah, there's, um, I guess, you know, a lot of people are wondering if this uh, Indonesian outbreak will create more of an imperative for people to, to, to consider the investment into this um, that's needed. We certainly think it is. I think you can maybe learn from the pork industry. We've, we've had ASF on the doorstep, mm. JAV, mm-hmm. J- Japanese encephalitis, encephalitis. It's not, it's not encephalitis, did you, did you say? Encephalitis. Encephalitis. Well, you know, we won't get into that one. Either, either. Well, Warwick Long gave us instructions on it. You say tomato, I say tomato. You take the long road, high road, short road. Take the long road now, take the high road now. Be in Scotland before (laughs) For you and my true love will never meet again. again. On the bonny, bonny banks of Loch Lomond. Okay, so, joined in. Oh, good. So it's it's much easier when you had a few beers. Uh, but <laughs> the yeah. So I guess the big thing is keep it out first and foremost. Bar security. Bar security is still strong in Australia compared to most other places. Definitely, uh, but well, our, our strength is the fact that we're an island, right? You know, I'm staying in the quarantine station at the moment. We're lucky that people had the foresight to put some measures in place back in the day. Although we still ended up with things like foxes and rabbits of course but um you know in terms of the disease front we're we're pretty good but but i'd remind i'd remind people that don't know the geography that the uk is also an island and well, and, and, it, and it managed to get foot and mouth disease so but yep. i think we're we're probably taking up a lot of your time bonnie uh, and i need to go to bunnings so um the the the, the reality is that it's a scary time in terms of foot and mouth disease. It's very close. So on the old doomsday clock, it's like 11.59. And, uh, but I think that's a bit negative. I think that threat's always been there from my point of view. You know, that's, it's not, it's, it is getting closer, but it's nothing that we don't know about. But we're, but, it, so but, but, we're, but we're here to sell podcasts. So the title will be 11, <laughs> 11.59 on a doomsday clock of sheep. I thought we were going to call it Come In Skinner. 
I don't get that. I don't know what you're talking about, to be honest. <laughs> two, two up. When, when you do two up, you yell out, come in, Skinner, as you throw up the coins and you're having a bit of a gamble. Have you ever had that pony? Uh, no. No. Okay, so you say, come in, Spinner. Yeah, that's what you do with the yeah. So, yeah, come in, Skinner. All right, go with your go with your other one. That, that's, yeah, that's rubbish, mate. <laughs> that's 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 okay, Boomer. Go and buy an investment house or something, mate. Um, so, I'm gonna use your superannuation on something. I'm gonna play golf or something like that, mate. Um, anyway. Yeah, look, it's it's look, it's one thing that we can control if we do the right thing, and we shall see. The test will be on you. Imagine that first year of being the CEO of Sheep Producers Australia, and, and, foot and, mouth and you have a foot and mouth outbreak. That'll be awesome fun. That'll be a good thing for your CV, though. You know, <laughs> silver silver linings and all that. You know, it's not a bad thing for your CV to say, well, I've. Worked through, and I was. I single-handedly kept Nazis out of Australia. I was the queen of the sheep during the uh, the um, the foot and mouth outbreak. That would be good for you. Let's be honest. Hmm, be a bit stressful. I'd prefer not to be in that situation. Totally, I'd love to just be able to keep it out. I think would be a, a greater silver lining. So, so, yeah. so, so, if you don't get foot and mouth disease, you'll say it's because I've kept it out, or you. You would say. In 12 months' time, you can say, no foot and mouth disease. It was all because of my tutelage and my work at Sheep Producers. That's right. Good, good collaboration. Job. Love a PR moment. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> so any, any words of wisdom before we leave you? Well, yeah, okay. We're here to sell podcasts. You are here to sell podcasts. But I think there's actually a lot, of, lot to be positive about the sheep industry. It is hard at the moment. But um, I think there's an opportunity there to be innovative and and collaborative that's what we need to do to come together we've got similar challenges all across this great land so yeah i would think there's a lot a lot to be bright about but um being vigilant around our biosecurity you know we have to say that um yeah i think it's i don't think it's all doom and gloom and you've you've got you've got a leadership program we certainly do yes if anybody is interested how, um, how many people have applied Actually, it's only gone out live last week, so I haven't got the stats from our leadership manager on that. We've had, we've definitely had people calling us up asking about being able to sign up. I know people are time poor, but uh, we're all about you know developing skills and the next lot of industry leaders coming through. Although that is, it's not even a topic of conversation we got onto. But Gillian Fennell and I are very, um, very passionate about this subject. <laughs> Speaking of which, yeah, did you know? Because this is a leadership program, sheep industry leadership program. So Matt is already a livestock leader. Yes. So I could put a red meat ambassador. Yeah, but I could. There's no actual. What is the what is the requirements? I'm just looking at just now. Who is it from? Passionate about the sheep industry. I'm passionate about the sheep industry. Want to take the next steps in your careers? Want to become? I don't want to become a leader. I'm all right. I'm all right, Jack. Okay. I'll leave. I'll leave it out. I just want to. I just want to sort of sit in the background. Curious to learn more about. Oh, I would like this. Curious to learn more about myself. What could I learn? You're, you know, still waters run deep. Who knows? There could be a. There could be all sorts of layers under there about yourself. Like an onion. Leadership is a journey, you know. Um, there's plenty of positions, plenty of. Um, Boards and committees out there that need young, upcoming, fresh-thinking minds in there, and um, and so I think you know people got to back themselves and 
this is to help people perhaps get some skills about themselves to give themselves more confidence um, in their ability. So should I, so should, I, should Matt and I put, should Matt and I both put our names forward? No, no I'm, not, I'm not putting. I've I've already right. done. Oh, you can, can can Matt can Matt apply for it even though he's on a policy council? It's going to be a um, a pretty strict selection process to get in for Matt. We'll have to set up a selection panel and and really grill mm. him on whether he's suitable or not. What about me? Can I put my name down? Who's who's meet the trainers? So I might I might put my name forward. I could be a sheep leader. You could be. <laughs> It might be more for you know people that are actually really within the sector. I'm in sector. Maybe you should listen to what... today. I'm in sector. You don't even know the live X figures. I'm out here working day in, <laughs> day out on grains, and I still got the time to get the data on the live export numbers for March. Ninety thousand head. That's that's less than. Nine thousand head, sorry. That that is nine thousand head is about twenty five truckloads. Yeah. I didn't um I didn't want to pull you up on it, but you actually And bear bear in mind, yeah. That is normally hundred and twenty thousand. I didn't want to embarrass you. I didn't want to embarrass you live on the podcast. Oh yeah, prove it, prove it. And give me give me some stats on grains, Matt. Okay. I'm I'm do I'm lifting up as all. You know, anyway. Anyway, I'll put my name forward. Frequently asked question. Oh, you could like... marry your sheep passion, if you have one, and your grains passion, which I'm still a little bit dubious about. And you know, perhaps you look into to lot feeding sheep. Mm, yeah, but bear, be another emerging opportunity for the industry. Bear, bear in mind, I'm we we are also wool analysts, so I quite often write wool analysis articles. That counts as sheep. Mm. Well, maybe you can see if AWI has a leadership program. You could. Well, sheep, sheep and wool is both equally important. Mm. Yeah. So it's all it's all a symbiotic relationship between meat and wool, and you know quite often our articles appear elsewhere. So it's clearly good work. So I'll apply. I'll put my name forward, and and, and see if I get anywhere. I know, I know somebody on sheep producers. So Bonnie, you can put a good word in for me, and we'll be fine. Oh, I think Matt could be a reference for you for sure. You know. I can. I'm sure I can get a few references involved in sheep. We'll see. Right, oh. Bunnings calls. Yep, Bunnings calls. Thanks for coming on, Bonnie. It's been excellent to have a wide-ranging chat on all things uh, sheep-related. And um, we'll see when you've got nothing on. Ciao for now. Thanks very much. <laughs>